Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, a new exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum examines Stonewall's impact on contemporary art and culture. We'll talk to two of the curators. It's not just that the Stonewall Uprising is a part of queer and trans legacy. It's a part of American history, and so we're all living within that legacy. And then it's not run, Bill, run, but why, Bill, why? We'll talk about the mayor throwing his hat into the ring and other things with Jarrett Murphy of City Limits. It's all about whether it's going to affect the city. And I think it's probably not a great thing to try to run for president while operating a bureaucracy of 300,000 people. That's far more people than work for any state. It's one of the largest governments uh, in, in the Western Hemisphere. It's been 50 years since Stonewall, four years since gay marriage became legal, three months since trans people were banned from openly serving in the military, and one week since you looked at me. The struggle for LGBT rights seems never-ending and turbulent, with the arc of the moral universe sometimes bending towards justice and sometimes bending towards fuck this. If you need me, I'll be in the bathtub screaming underwater. But it is important, especially in dark times, to celebrate anniversaries. A number of New York museums and cultural institutions are marking 50 years since the Stonewall riots, with exhibitions ranging from the historical to the cutting edge. The Brooklyn Museum's offering is called Nobody Promised You Tomorrow, and we're happy it brings two of the exhibit's co-curators to the studio. Margot Cohen-Bristarucci, Brooklyn Museum's Public Programs Coordinator. Welcome to Woman 2 bk and Ali Ricard, a curatorial assistant. Welcome, you guys. Thanks for having us. So, Margot, maybe we'll start with you. Can you just tell us a little bit about the scope of the show? Sure. The exhibition is a group exhibition of contemporary artists. All of the artists were born 1969. It was really important for us to look at the legacy of the 1969 Stonewall Uprising in contemporary visual art and culture. And Ali, you're a co-curator of the show, and actually there were many different curators for this exhibition from all across the museum and different departments. Is that right? So this was the first time we've done this at the Brooklyn Museum, where we're co-curating across different departments, both curatorial departments but non-curatorial departments, including Margot and Lauren Zelaya from Public Programs, and then our fabulous colleague Lindsay C. Harris from Education. And it was so important for us to think non-hierarchically about how we present these narratives, how we tell history, how we show LGBTQ culture. Um, and of course, the history of the Stonewall Uprising is multi-generational. It's multi-vocal. We know that riot was multi-gender and multi-racial. And so often that narrative has been whitewashed and genderwashed. So it's so important for us to model in the collective itself that we can come together, work collectively, collaborate, and bring our different perspectives and our different experiences to the table and really make it an inclusive exhibition, an inclusive story for folks to be able to see themselves in the show. So, Ali, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, the new works that both Tourmaline and Sasha Words will have in the show. They're both video pieces. Is yeah, that right? I would love to. So uh, it's important to note that over half of the artists in the show, so more than uh, there's 20 artists, more than half of them are all presenting new work. So the show is very contemporary. Nothing dates before 2011. And so we're really thinking about our present moment. And so we we're able to do several major commissions, one of which is Tourmaline's new film, Salacia. Um, such a beautiful and important new work by Tourmaline. And it focuses our attention on the life of Mary Jones, a black trans woman who lived in New York City in the 1800s, and she was criminalized for sex work at the time. And so the film um, starts us off in Seneca Village, which was the free black landowning community that was displaced through eminent domain to create the Central Park that we know today. And we also see Mary Jones incarcerated in Castle Williams. We also see Sylvia Rivera, such an important iconic trans activist in that film, being interviewed in the 90s when she lived um, on the piers right outside where the new 
Whitney Museum is located. And so we're so happy to be able to include that film and really also stretch this historical continuum of Stonewall that these artists are living today and they're really rooted in the present and they are looking to 1969, but they're looking far beyond 1969. They're really looking to the future and thinking about how we can care for our communities moving forward um, in the years to come in the Stonewall legacy. And then of course, we also presented new work by Sasha Wurzel. Sasha's films are really in dialogue with Tourmaline's practice um, in a really moving way. These two films, This is an Address 1 and This is an Address 2, think about gentrification and displacement. The first work is cited on the pier where, where Sylvia lived outside the Whitney Museum back in the 90s. Um, and we see Sylvia and others being interviewed. Um, and they're part of a homeless community of mostly queer and trans folks of color, many of whom were living with HIV, and really talking powerfully about having lack of access to health care simply because they didn't have a permanent address. The second film focuses our attention on sites throughout the meatpacking district in the same neighborhood um, that were once important sites for queer and trans community, whether it be a bar or a cafe or a shop that would welcome gender nonconforming and trans patrons, but are no longer those sites. So they've been gentrified and are now maybe luxury fashion stores or a vacant building. And so we can think about these histories um, of gentrification, of displacement, and the powers that are at play, um, whether it be capitalism, racism, and just the different forces that have really changed the landscape of queer community in New York since 1969. So it's June, which means that it's Pride Month, which means that all of the cultural institutions and also brands trot out all of their queer programming and tributes. But it is 50 years since Stonewall. And I'm curious, maybe, Margo, you can answer this. I'm curious about how that anniversary and the marking of that riot changes the frame a little bit about how we mark pride this year and about how you think about mm -hmm. programming at the Brooklyn Museum. Certainly. Well, with the exhibition, we really took the Stonewall Uprising as our starting point, but the exhibition is certainly not entirely focused on those six days of riots. We have four themes to the exhibition. It starts with revolt and heritage and then moves into desire and care networks. And the show is up through December. We were really thinking about these intersections of care and community and friendship and survival throughout the exhibition. Ali, talk to me a little bit about the way that you viewed nightlife and people who throw parties as part of this larger movement. And how did you include them in the show? Yeah, I mean, nightlife is essential, right? Like, that's a space where we can go and care for one another. We can express and explore desire. We can find community. We can find love. We can cut loose. And, of course, we wanted to connect back to nightlife with the Stonewall Inn being a gay bar. And at that time, all gay bars in the 60s in New York City were run by the mafia. Um, and it was a racket to extort money from the community. And they were also routinely policed by the NYPD. And so thinking about how queer and trans nightlife has changed throughout time since 1969 was so important important to us and really centering, as Margot was saying, care. This idea of how do we come together? How do we care for one another? And, you know, care can be the bridge to collective liberation, but it can also be the end reason. Like that can be the site as well when we can come together and really support one another. Like that's when we find freedom and liberation. And we can still experience that today at poppy juice parties, at other um, parties and clubs in New York City. And we also, you know, we wanted to include work that wasn't necessarily traditional fine arts in the show. So we have flyers from Poppy Juice. They're great illustrations by Mohammed Fayez that folks are probably familiar with from you know Instagram and Facebook, and they're in the show. Um, we also have graffiti work and zines and music videos. And so that was a way to really make the show accessible um, and really think about 
how nightlife can be such an important space to come together. And so we'll be throwing a party with Poppy Juice as part of Brooklyn Pride. And we're really excited to share the exhibition with community that night, but also just, you know, cut loose, be cute and have fun. Um, you also feature a work by another artist and nightlife fixture, Juliana Huxtable, called The Feminist Scam. Um, can one of you tell me a little bit about this piece? Uh, and for people on the podcast, maybe just describe what mm. what it is and what it looks like. Sure. So we were really excited to have Juliana in the show. And like so many artists, you know, she appears in different ways. So she has work in the show, including The Feminist Scam, but she also shows up on those poppy juice flyers. And so we're also seeing these care networks at play with how this constellation of artists is, you know, in community with one one another and constitutes their own care network. And so Juliana's The Feminist Scam comes from a series of works that incorporate um, scans of her original paintings, as well as a lot of content that she pulls from the internet. And so she's really interested in kind of the vitriol of the digital age that we currently live in, um, you know, whether it be chat rooms or other comments and how that sort of dialogue can spin out of control in so many ways. And so the feminist scam draws um, different chats and different comments from chat rooms um, that are for African-American men, and it's really kind of pushing a misogynist viewpoint, right? That like feminism is a scam um, and that black women who identify as feminists will then no longer support the black family. And so that viewpoint is like kind of buying into this very um, heteronormative idea of what family can look like and a very rigid structure of what feminism actually means. And so for Juliana, she kind of spins this. It's very satirical. She has lots of buttons that are on the work as well. And so we think see things like turf wars, thinking about trans exclusionary radical feminists. And it's a moment to think critically about how internet dialogue functions. And those works are included in the revolt section. And that section is thinking about contemporary instances of resistance and survival, um, but also tying us back to the Stonewall uprising being a revolt. Talk to me a little bit more about these grouping, Margos. So as we said, it's revolt, heritage, desire, and care networks. Why were these pillars that you wanted to build around, and how do you think about them differently? Certainly. So when we started this process a year and a half ago, we began by meeting with many of the artists in the exhibition, either in their studios or inviting them to the museum for a coffee or to walk around together. And pretty earnestly, we, we began each conversation by asking them if Stonewall had significance to them. What does Stonewall mean to you? And overwhelmingly, we received enthusiasm from them. And as Ali mentioned earlier, many of the artists in the show were so excited by the framework of this exhibition that they wanted to create new work. And from those same conversations, these four themes crystallized for us. We knew from the start, in part because of the collaborative nature of our collective, that we wanted to focus on some of these less sensationalized aspects of queer and trans existence, the everyday mundane ways that we love one another, that we keep each other alive. So friendship is always really important and that's kind of flourished into our care network section. But we begin with revolt, perhaps most naturally, because that's how people traditionally think of Stonewall. It was a riot. It took six days of active organizing, and it was a response to a routine police raid. So from the start, an anti-assimilationist, anti-police uprising. And then we move from revolt into heritage. And in heritage, many of the artists in this section are either identifying and naming specific queer and trans elders, Stormy DeLarvere, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and paying tribute to them. Um, but also thinking about the kind of legacy that they will leave for future generations. In Desire, we take a pivot. We're thinking of desire in multiple ways, both desire for one another in a very intimate sense, love, affection, lust, and also desire in a more utopian sense, thinking of desire as a motivating power for imagining other worlds and ways of being in community. 
And then as we end in care, and that's really has been important for us. It's been a sort of intervention in how um, in how people tell the story of Stonewall. And, and for so many of the folks who were so critical to the Stonewall uprising and to queer liberations for decades before and decades after, there are so many people who were not in the streets and can't be in the streets. So it was really important for us to highlight the way that a club space, collective living, writing to a friend, calling a friend on the phone, all of those can be also forms of sanctuary. So as we mentioned at the top, there are a lot of different Stonewall-related exhibitions going on right now, and some of them are quite historical, um, focusing on the events, on artifacts, um, and some of them are using Stonewall as more of a jumping-off point, as your exhibition is. And I think it's really interesting, this idea that Everybody who's touched the show, or at least the artists, are the curators all under 50 as well? Or Yeah, we are. Okay, so everybody <laughs> Very much who's so, like, yes. touched the show, has been involved in the show, <laughs> was born post-Stonewall. Yeah. Um, and I love this idea of asking, like, oh, well, like, what does this event that you weren't alive for mean to you? Um, and maybe I'll just ask that of you guys. What does Stonewall mean to you as people who were born, I imagine, quite a bit after Stonewall? You're right. Yeah. I mean, such an important, powerful question, right? How do we think of ourselves in relation to our legacy? And of course, it's not just that the Stonewall uprising is a part of queer and trans legacy. It's a part of American history. And so we're all living within that legacy. I think for me, it's a reminder of the precarity, you know, that we experience as queer and trans folks that comes from the systems of oppression that we live in in the United States. Um, But it's also thinking about our vitality, our vibrancy, our beauty as a community and our ways that we can come together, take collective action, support one another, show up and love each other. Um, And I think focusing our attention back on Stonewall has been so important for me to really be reminded of these strands of queer liberation, right? You know, not just thinking about marriage equality or being able to serve in the military, but thinking about, you know, I don't want to get married or I don't want to serve in the military because I don't believe in this, you know, imperialist capitalist country that we live in. And so the, for the core concerns of people who rose up in 1969, they were thinking about police brutality, state sanctioned violence, homelessness, lack of access to health care, racism. And all of these concerns are so persistent for the ways that we live our lives today. And so I think it's been such an important reminder to look to their legacy, look to their example and think about how can we take Take action and come together today to really support one another in our communities. I think that's so true. And I'm so happy that actually on the 50th anniversary, Stonewall is being forefronted in such a huge way, because I feel for such a long time, the focus has been on more palatable uh, items on the gay agenda, if you will, because Stonewall was a riot and because it Mm -hmm. featured black and brown bodies and, you know, non-binary bodies. And so it wasn't as embraceable by mainstream American culture. Totally. Yeah. And I think we can think about like, whose gay agenda are we talking Mm -hmm. about? Are we talking about cis white men? Are we talking about trans women of color and homeless LGBTQ folks who really led that uprising? And how can we be centering their narratives in the past and how we think about history, but also centering our care and attention on supporting the members of our community who find themselves most marginalized by mainstream society? So the Brooklyn Museum is coming off the success of the Frida show, Mm -hmm. which everyone went to see. People waited in line. A super approachable, amazing show. If uh, Who doesn't love Frida? Who doesn't love her outfits, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And now you have a show that is really pushing people to think a little deeper, examine maybe some of their own prejudices, uh, the way that they view history, and, and think about if that's actually what happened at Stonewall, if what happened at Stonewall is what they think happened at Stonewall. I'm curious what you hope people take away from this, especially people who are maybe coming to the museum and not specifically for this show, but who may find themselves there? Well, certainly the show is quite welcoming. And 
we're we're pushing against the mainstream narratives that have so often excluded queer and trans people of color especially. And the show, when you walk into it, it was a priority for us from the start to really highlight the vibrance and the beauty of queer artistic production today. So when you walk in, there's a lot of color, there's a lot of texture, it's an open space. We made sure to have lots of benches. Um, so I hope that people feel pushed critically, but also that they feel welcome there. We have an incredible resource room that we're calling Our House that was organized by Levi Narain, who is a teen educator who assisted us throughout the curatorial process. He worked really closely with the artists soliciting um, recommendations for books. So there's an amazing library in there. There's iPads if you want to hear Sylvia Rivera giving her infamous speech. There's a section where you can draw and um, communicate your own wishes for the future. So we also hope that people spend a lot of time in the exhibition, that they take away some curiosity and that they return and the show is up through December, and so there's many opportunity to, to really share time in that space. And what do you think, Allie? What do you hope that people get from the show? Yeah, I hope that they are pushed to question the ways that we tell history and how we remember and why do we remember the people that we do. Um, and it's not just about like restoring Sylvia and Marsha and Stormy and so many others to these narratives of Stonewall, but also not forgetting why those erasures happened. Mm -hmm. And so I hope people are able to develop that sort of um, critical perspective to be able to appreciate our history and our lineage, but think about how we can remember what's happening now, today, 50 years from now. And that was also a point of the show, right? There are so many historical exhibitions that have happened throughout time about queer history in this moment that you know, the curators have been like, well, we couldn't find any artists of color. Or we couldn't find any trans and gender non-conforming artists. Yeah, it's ridiculous. We know that's not true. Right. And of course, there are so many um, important reasons why that happens, right? Like absences within the archive. Um, but we really wanted to create a show that would be an archive itself. So mm -hmm. that when people 20, 50 years from now look back and want to know about queer and trans artists working in New York City, in Brooklyn today, in 2019, they see such an amazing community of queer and trans artists of color, of black trans artists and that's that's those are really the people that we wanted to center in this show to create an archive itself of this exhibition for the future. I think that's an amazing point that sort of brings us back to the beginning about how the show is curated. And so mm -hmm. often when you have a curator or somebody who is hiring say I just couldn't find anyone mm -hmm. who's a trans person of color. It's right. because their scope is so narrow. And so by having right. this collective curatorial um, viewpoint that you guys used, I imagine that it allowed a much wider net to be cast and people's different networks to be tapped. Yeah, absolutely. And there were certainly artists that I wasn't familiar with or, you know, like street artists and graffiti art. It's not my forte. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a field of art that I'm very familiar with. But Lauren really brought a lot of suggestions to the table. And we were so happy to include Hugo Girl, one of the most prominent queer graffiti artists working today um, and so many other folks. And, you know, many of us are in community and friends with artists in the show as well. Um, but it's really a constellation, right, of folks that came from my suggestions, Margot's, Lauren's, Lindsay's, Carmen's. And so I think it's a really beautiful dialogue of all of these different folks. So it's not a singular vision of history. And I think that's so important. It's worth noting that we're in community with many of these artists and they're in community with each other. The show explores friendship, but also the show features friends. And there are many moments also throughout the exhibition where artists have collaborated on works with each other. So I really appreciate you recognizing the benefit of collective organization because it really uh, is quite bountiful. Margo, Ali, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Mackenzie. Thank
finally the moment that no one has been waiting for. Bill de Blasio is running for president. We knew it was coming, and here to talk about it is Jarrett Murphy, back for his tri-weekly visit to the 112BK studio. We're also going to talk about a little mom-and-pop shop called Target, the Queen's DA race, and a shitty story about the Gowanus Canal. Putting the fun in Superfund is Jarrett Murphy, executive editor at City Limits. Welcome back, Jarrett. Thanks. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. No problem. Anytime. Um, let's start with Gowanus. So there's been a draft plan to rezone mm-hmm. Gowanus um, in order to build more housing. Tell us a little bit about that and why some people are up in arms. So this is the product, uh, I should say, to some degree, the product of a process that Brad Lander, the council member for that area, started several years ago called Bridging Gowanus. This and a couple other neighborhoods in the city decided not to wait for the city to come to it with a rezoning plan. They held meetings and discussions about what they wanted to see. And that plan has at least shaped what the city has come back with, which is to look at this neighborhood. And we talk about Gowanus. This is probably not what most people consider the entire neighborhood. It's portions of it around the canal. It looks at trying to limit density in some places, but to protect the current environment in a few, but really to build some density along major corridors, um, creating, as you said, room for more housing. I believe they're looking at the possibility of it generating something like 8,000 apartments, which would make it, I believe, the biggest rezoning so far under de Blasio, just in terms of pure unit size. You know, there are people in the neighborhood with different opinions about it. Some people were invested in the process that produced the plan. They have some concerns about the specifics of what the city's talking about in terms of affordability. There's a lot of concern in this neighborhood that's very particular to Gowanus about the water. There's the Superfund cleanup there, obviously, which complicates things a bit. And this is a coastal area in a city that is increasingly vulnerable to climate change. So dealing with where the water is going to go when it rains, when the sea rises, is, I think, a big part of the concern around this and something that both Bridging Gowanus and the city's plan attempted to address. One of the issues that's come up is just the, the size of some of these buildings. It's possible you'll have 14, 15-story buildings in areas where that doesn't exist now. But this is a place where you have the council member asking for more density so that more housing can be created. And I think a lot of it goes to the specifics of that, affordability levels, the options that developers will have for how many units at which income target zones they'll have to produce. Right. And those are sort of pedestrian issues. You know, whenever you have new development, there's always calls for more affordable housing, Mm -hmm. or is this housing, affordable housing, really affordable? But what's unique about this is, as you mentioned, the fact that it's situated on the banks of the Gowanus Canal, and the Superfund cleanup has been going quite well. Mm -hmm. A lot of the toxic black mayonnaise has been removed, and it's the cleanest it's ever been in 150 years. Um, But the concerns are about what happens when you add 8,000 apartments to the banks of the Gowanus Canal. And we already have something known as a punami that occurs <laughs> during times of heavy rains. Will you tell us a little bit about this? Yes. Well, the punami is about the fact that this is still, the canal is still a place that is targeted by or affected by combined sewer overflows. So New York CSOs. City CSOs, mm-hmm. as people like you and I refer to it. No. <laughs> That's right. Really so, cool people cool like people, us. Cool guys. Yeah. So New York City has a sewer system that's split about 60-40. 60% of it is this old system called CSO, combined sewer, which means basically rainwater and the bad stuff all goes in the same pipe and then to the plant where it's processed and everything's made okay. Normally that works fine. When it rains particularly heavily or particularly fast, that system gets overwhelmed. And rather than having the sewage plants explode, what they do is kick the excess water right into waterways. So that happens in the Bronx River, the Hutch, it happens in the Hudson, and it happens in Gowanus Canal. And the pollution in the Gowanus Canal is understood to be partly the legacy of like long ago industry, this stuff called manufactured gas, 
that's what a lot of the bad stuff is. But some of what it is, is manufactured just, gas. It's this form of heating oil, I think, a heating element that was created from, from spare oil. I'm not exactly sure. But apparently it was gross and bad, as many old things were. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what makes the canal what it is. I think part of the canal pollution dates back to like when there were leather tanneries there a long time ago. But much of it is much more recent. It's about CSOs, which are producing untreated wastewater to the millions and billions of gallons every year anytime it rains particularly heavily or quickly. So that still occurs. The city's been trying to reduce those a lot with green infrastructure, with a better sewage system, and some specific controls in this area. And it has been reduced, but it's not gone entirely. Yeah, and in reading about this, I had to read the term fecal flow far more often than I would have liked. Yeah, you normally only want to use the term like once a day. Yes, but when you read about max, this, it's all I would the say. Place. Yeah. So if some of these apartment buildings are built, you're going to want to make sure to rent or buy one of the apartments that is is upstream, <laughs> right? And also, I just learned that you're not supposed to flush your toilet, take a shower, run your dishwasher if you have one of those during a heavy storm. No, you aren't. You aren't. You're supposed to. And, you know, what mom once said or your camp counselor once said is true. If it's yellow, let it mellow. Really. <laughs> Play it if cool. it's brown, flush right, it down. So All right. We're poets on this show. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Queens DA race. I think that this is super exciting. So Richard A. Brown, who was the Queens District Attorney for almost 28 years, passed away. And so we have a, a wide open race for the first time in a long time. In a very long time. Talk to me a little bit about what is at stake here. This is about, of the five city DA offices, you know, there's one for each borough, This is the office that has been seen as the most punitive, uh, the one that was most resistant to criminal justice reform. The Manhattan office and the Brooklyn office have embraced some, Bronx to some degree, and Staten Island is just a fairly small territory in terms of prosecutions. But Queens under Brown has always been among the toughest, including on misdemeanors. And so this is an opportunity to reset that office. What's at stake here is what kind of reform is this very large borough, which would be one of the top cities in the U.S. for population if it were on its own, how far is it going to go down the path of reform? You have people running who are a former judge, a former prosecutor, who talk about wrongful convictions and trying to reverse those, certainly talking about a different approach to some of these crimes that Richard Brown have, but very different from some people in the race uh, who are talking about a decarcerative approach. In other words, a prosecutor whose primary purpose would be to not prosecute people, and to try to alleviate the impact of the incarcerative system we've had. So it's an extraordinary conversation to be occurring uh, in a city where 20 years ago everyone was just worried about locking everybody up. So yeah, it's a seven-person race for the Democratic primary in June, which effectively, of course, would be election to the office in November. And it involves a range of people kind of along the spectrum, everyone from the borough president, Melinda Katz, who's kind of an establishment candidate, embraces some elements of reform, to Tiffany Caban, who has become sort of the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of this race. In fact, she was endorsed by AOC, mm-hmm. a very, very progressive, very left-wing approach to the office, totally different from anything Dick Brown ever talked about. And Tiffany Caban, who is um, 31, she's queer, uh, she's a member of the DSA, she's also a public defender. And mm-hmm. so potentially, if she won, we could see Queens following Philadelphia and St. Louis in electing defenders to the position of DA. Which is extraordinary. And I think people, you know, DA is one of those offices that because these guys are in it for so long, Brown was in it for 28 years, you know, Robert Morgenthau was DA for like six or 700 years in Manhattan. (laughs) You don't think about them much, but there's an extraordinary amount of power in that office because when you come down to it, the legislature sets the laws, 
the mayor controls the police department and whom they arrest. But the key decisions in the process when someone is picked up for a crime really do come from the DA's office, everything from whether to bother prosecuting at all, to imposing bail, to what kind of conditions there if you don't do bail, to what kind of sentencing you do or alternative sentencing you do if someone is found responsible for a crime. A vast amount of power. And so to have someone who is a public defender in that role would be a, a totally different approach from Brown, who was a judge. There's, a, an, as I mentioned, a couple other prosecutors in the race, one current judge in the race, so a very different approach. I'm super curious about Richard A. Brown. Was he ever really challenged in his 28 years? It sounds like he was really tough on misdemeanors, small drug crimes, turnstile jumpers. He went after them. It it seems like you would have somebody challenging him from the left during his tenure. You would think so, but I've looked at the past races and not really. I mean, I think he faced a couple challenges in the general election, maybe a primary or two. But because these elections tend to occur in off years, it's 2019, so you're not going to get big turnout. I think that's a reason why people didn't challenge him. Also, we have to realize that the place we're at in the criminal justice conversation is so different from even like five years ago. What people are talking about now, the amount of reform that even establishment candidates are willing to contemplate is vastly different from what people were talking about. Five years ago, Bill de Blasio was crazy for talking about shutting down stop and frisk or reducing it vastly. There was fear about what it was going to do to the city. That seems like a relatively conservative approach now compared with where the reform conversation is. This is all turned around very, very quickly, which is exciting. I think there's always the potential for a backlash. And I think some of the candidates in this race appear to be anticipating that, suggesting that we want to be careful about how much we take the foot off the pedal of prosecuting violent crime. Some people who still see the prosecutor's primary job as prosecuting, I think that they're trying to tap into the fact that there are some misgivings about how far reform has gone. And I think hedging their bets that at some point the pendulum may swing back and people in the consensus in the mainstream of the party, of Democratic Party, may be less open to these ideas about really radical reform. Whether they're right or not, those attitudes could shift. So you invoked the name of our mayor, and we haven't seen you since he announced that he's running for president. He's running for president. I know. Surprise. Tell me how I should feel about this other than sort of like a giant shrug. (laughs) I think that I put aside his presidential candidacy except for the question of what impact it's going to have on the city. Yes. Um, And there I think there's some real questions about that, which I think are going to be answered a lot during the next few weeks during the city budget process, which is typically... Let's face it, the city's budget is where the rubber meets the road in terms of policy in the city. So I think we'll be looking for signs of how actively he's engaged in that conversation um, for good or ill, or whether he is truly distracted by campaigning around the country. I think it's odd that someone who is the mayor of the greatest city in the country has vast power to change the lives of a million people, millions of people every day, that they would pursue a kind of quixotic effort to become president. There are a lot of different motivations for that. What, what his chances are, what his case is, he's, he's barely making a new policy case. I don't really care. It's all about whether it's going to affect the city. And I think it's probably not a great thing to try to run for president while operating, you know, a bureaucracy of 300,000 people. That's far more people than work for any state. It's one of the largest governments in the Western Hemisphere. And um, I don't think you can do that from, like, Manchester, New Hampshire. Right. I mean, it already feels like we have a bit of an absent father figure. He's spending a lot of time in Iowa and has been for months. Who is running the government in his absence? It is interesting in that he has been out of the city so often over the course of his mayoralty that maybe not much will change. And apparently he's not been a big, like, city hall guy even when he's in town. 
you know, the, the city obviously has a vast management structure. There are several deputy mayors. There's always one who's designated to be in charge when the mayor is gone, and that will continue to occur. Because of modern communication, it's quite possible the city can function smoothly for the most part without him here. What that says about his leadership style, I don't know. It's worth remembering that Mayor Bloomberg went to Bermuda every weekend of his mayoralty, like every single one, and the city largely survived intact, and his management was seen as exemplary. So we do have to be fair about that. Right, but right. Good point. One interesting thing is that apparently under the city charter, if he leaves for a certain number of days, the public advocate like takes over. So it'll be interesting to follow the calendar and see the schedule of when he leaves and comes back, because apparently there is some, I think think it's like five or seven days, if he's out for that long, public advocate takes charge, at least during the remainder of his absence. So Jimani Williams will be watching that calendar very closely. If he's not in jail, talk to me about (laughs) Jimani's latest arrest. Yes, there were a huge wave of arrests yesterday or this week in, in Albany around rent regulations. Um, A few politicians going up there. I don't know how many submitted to arrest, but Jumani did. He obviously has done civil disobedience arrests before. And this is about rent regs, which are coming down to a a major deadline. The end of session is June 19th. The rent regs themselves expire on the 15th. And these are the regulations that affect about 970,000 apartments in the city, roughly 2 million uh, people who live in them. And this is a banner year for tenant advocates. They believe, with I think a lot of credibility, that given Democratic control of all the levers of government and a particularly progressive bent to many of the Democrats who came in last year, that they're going to secure huge wins, roll back things that landlords have won over the past 20 years and potentially fundamentally put rent stabilization on a totally different framework. Jumani Williams, not afraid to put himself on the line for rent regulations, um, immigration issues. And I think there was some question about whether he would continue to perform acts of civil disobedience once he got elected to public advocate. Do you think that he kind of needs to to maintain his street cred? Do you think it's part of his personal brand? He always refers to himself as an activist slash politician or hyphen politician. That is him. That's his that's his thing. He always his lapels are are bedazzled, if I might say, with buttons for various causes. That's that's sort of his thing. Let's close out with a weird little zoning story concerning Target. Talk to me about this new Target that is going to be opening up in Queens. So this is a different kind of Target than the ones that I've purchased slacks at in the past. This is, uh, I think it's called the Small Footprint Target. Mm-hmm. And this is an attempt by the company to get into more neighborhood scale retail. But the question is, exactly what scale. This is a parcel in Jackson Heights that is zoned for uh, a neighborhood store, not a regional store or a store from to which people would come from other neighborhoods. A and, big box store, department right. store, not for them. And so the fight over this particular parcel, and apparently this is a model that Target hopes to replicate elsewhere in the city, is whether this is truly just a neighborhood store or whether it is a Target just with a kind of funky layout. And the way that Target apparently has gotten around some of the zoning rules for this parcel is to say, that its store is not really more than 10,000 square feet because all the excess square feet will be underground, that that doesn't count. So the size of the store is only what's showing, you know, as if the size of an iceberg is only what's above water. That argument apparently was persuasive at the Board of Standards and Appeals this week, so it has been approved. I imagine there could be some litigation around that, other decisions to be made down the road, but that is an interesting model. And really for folks who are worried about the impact of chains on neighborhood retail, kind of frightening because if the targets of the world were already hurting mom and pop stores when they were in big box uh, format located only in big box parcels around the city. Now they're moving into smaller parcels, more 
broadly dispersed that could pose an even greater threat to our bodegas and our remaining independent stores in the city. Well, Jarrett, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And see you next time. You too. And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to hold the black mayonnaise. Or you could review 112BK on iTunes and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham.